You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow a side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews. So let's get started. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have a woman who has literally redefined the fashion industry. Her name is Monif Clark, and she is the founder of Monif C. Monif C is a fashion forward plus size designer brand specializing in clothing and swimsuits for women sizes 14 to 24. Monif had no prior design experience, but grew frustrated with the lack of trendy plus size clothing. And in 2005, teamed up with her mother to bring Monif C. the brand to life. Monif's story is the perfect example of not letting one person's no discourage you from continuing on your journey. In fact, Monif received a lot of no's on the way to success, often being told that her designs were too sexy and that plus-size women preferred not to show off their bodies. But Monif refused to take no for an answer. Today, Monif C. is sold not only on MonifC.com, but at ASOS.com, Forever21.com, as well as specialty boutiques throughout the U.S., London, Canada, and Australia, just to name a few. In September 2017, Monif C. will celebrate 12 years serving plus-size women. On today's episode, Monif gets into how she funded the business in the early days, that time she wouldn't let Jill Scott have Monif C. clothing for free, why press doesn't automatically equal sales, and the investment she makes in her business, plus how she's continuing to grow her brand. Before we chat with Monif, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you expanding your business and staff? Are you looking for the right candidate with the skills to help you scale your business? Hiring can be one of the most challenging tasks for business owners. Although there's no blueprint to building the perfect team, there is one website that can simplify the recruiting process and make your life easier. If you're looking to hire top talent for your business and take it to that next level, go to ZipRecruiter.com. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Let ZipRecruiter's powerful technology match your job to the right candidates and use their simple dashboard to find the right hire. Then easily select the best candidates from one list. 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. And over 1 million businesses have already used ZipRecruiter. To try ZipRecruiter for free today, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash hustle. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Monique. Hi. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I've admired your story for so long and, you know, I've had you on my wish list for the podcast. So I'm Yay. very glad we're finally connecting. That makes <laughs> um, me feel good. <laughs> right. So for those who haven't followed your journey, tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, your initial career path before creating Monif C. Oh, wow. Okay. So... I started Monique C 12 years ago when I was, uh, gosh, how old was I at that time? 26. And I never, 
fashion was not even anywhere remotely on the agenda for my life. I actually started off in Rutgers University as an engineering student. My you know, my dad said, you have the aptitude for math and computer science. So he sent me to do a computer engineering degree. I hated engineering, but I got about three years in and I was like, what am I going to do with these credits? And they said, well, you could get a math and computer science degree and get out in the same amount of time. So I said, good. And I already knew at that point that I wasn't going to really pursue that as a career, but I just, you know, I, I knew that that paper was important and I enjoyed thinking analytically. I just didn't necessarily, I wasn't necessarily somebody who wanted to necessarily do that for the rest of my life um, and did not really know what I wanted to do and dabbled in, you know, you do these like corporate jobs and then you do a little bit. Of, I did some nonprofit work. I was working, helping kids get access to computer education in Harlem and in Boston and working in that and enjoyed it, but didn't really love the structure of a job. My mom used to joke all the time. She used to call me when I was on my way to work in Boston. It was like my first real job out of college. And it'd be like, 10 o'clock and I'd be on my way to work and she'd be like, wait, on your way to work now? And I'd be like, oh. wait, what time are you supposed to be there? And I was like, ah, I come and go as I please. And she, she made a joke. She was like, you better figure out a business for yourself very soon, she said, because the only reason those people keep you around there is because you're crazy smart, but anybody else would fire you walking in the office <laughs> like 11 o'clock in the morning. So I was like, oh, okay. So I left that. And as I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, I, I tried a couple of different businesses. Someone that I had an internship with when I was in high school she and I so randomly ran into each other at a bookstore while I was like in between jobs. She was like, oh my God, Monique, I've been looking for you for months. And I was like, months? She was like, I didn't know what number to call and whatever. But I started this eBay business and I said to myself, if there's anybody who can help me run this eBay business, it's you, you know, blah, blah. And literally I was like, what are you selling? And she was like, well, I'm selling children's clothing. And I basically go down to like the Trenton Rescue Mission and Salvation Army and I buy these clothes. I refurbish them and I sell them in lots on eBay. And she was like, I want you to help me. Well, what she didn't really know was like, I called my mom and I was like, mom, my mother at the time had had her first bout with cancer. So she was home. She was a special education teacher, but she was home. And, you know, it was one of those things where like my dad was looking at me. He was also home after having worked for many years in corporate America as a computer engineer himself. And they were both kind of like, finding what was next, you know, kind of like you do your first half of your career and then you have that lull. And then it's like, what am I going to do now with my life after sometimes an illness or whatever? I, I'm getting off track. What my dad basically said to me, you know, you're really the only person in this house that could probably go find a job quickly. And you're like at home, like, what are you doing? And it was pressure, but it wasn't like, you know, pressure that some people experience from their parents. But when I called my mom and I was like, you know, I ran into Stephanie at the bookstore and she was like, she's doing this eBay business. My mom was like, tell her we'll be with her on the way to the rescue mission tomorrow. And wow. like we literally piled into my mom's van and we went down there. And I think she thought we were going to like help her, but we very quickly figured out the steps to do it ourselves and started our own eBay handle. 
and started selling. So that was like business number one. And I call that like my starter business because it helped me to understand order fulfillment, customer service, you know, how to use systems to sell online. You know, it wasn't a crazy jump in terms of what I was doing because I already had an app to do for computers, but it was just kind of like, oh, there's this new world out there called e-commerce. All right, what's this all about? So did you have any kind of background in fashion? Did you just love style? None. I had none. I had zero. Like it, And the, the reason I'm telling you this whole background is because I, it, it'll like make sense how it came into play. So it was kind of like I had none. I just think that I was always open to learning about new things. And anytime something came into my lap that made a little bit of sense, I was like, oh, OK, well, let me see what that's all about. And then it all linked together because... You know, we we did the eBay business. We got really, really good at it, became like eBay power sellers. The state of New Jersey gave us an award, small business of the year. But then eBay started to get really tricky and they said, all right, people are making money on this platform. Let's raise our fees. And that Mm. was around the time they raised their fees. And so then we had to figure out what was next. And again, it was kind of one of those like six month lulls of like, we're still doing a little bit of eBay, but we're also a little bit unsure about what's next. And I had some family in England and I said, mom, you know, I want to go visit such and such in England. And she was like, are you sure we got stuff to do? I was like, no, I want to go. And I went and travel's always been like a big part of like me figuring out what's next for me. So I went and my cousin, Trisha, who I didn't know it at the time, but she used to run her own clothing business. And we walked into a factory that she worked with. Wow. And I said, oh my God why isn't anybody doing clothes like this in plus size? And she literally was like, why don't you do it? And I looked at her like, what are you talking about? And I called my mom. It's like, it's, it's like the same scenario over again. I called her that night and I said, mom, you know, Trisha said X, Y, Z. What do you think? And she was like, <laughs> you're the type of person where if you try to learn something, you're going to learn it. So let's give it a go. And it was like, literally, I, I was flying back to New York like three, four days later. I was on the next plane smoking back to London about two weeks after that. And I basically immersed myself in a factory for a month and learned the ins and outs of the fashion industry. And I didn't end up working with that particular factory in London, but the seed had been planted by that point and it was just off to the races. I just learned everything I needed to learn about how to create product, how to design, where to find manufacturers, what to do. That was basically 12 years ago. I love that your brand has always been about not only body positivity, but just about making clothes that people actually want to wear. And from the very beginning, it seems you had this vision, you were customer centric and you're like, wait a second, like, look at all this stylish stuff. Why doesn't anyone make it in a bigger size? So talk to us about that and about those very first steps you took. Okay, you went to London. What happened next? Did you bring back a whole bunch of styles? Well, so what happened was I went to London and, you know, I I soon found out that although the factory that I was talking to was very interested in working with me, the import duties of bringing things in from Europe to the U.S. was quite expensive. But I always say to myself that that was kind of like my first foray into even learning what a factory was. So I spent probably about the next five months aimless, just kind of like, how am I going to get this stuff made? Again, never went to fashion school don't know how to sketch, don't even know how to sew, don't even know anything about patterns, samples, trimmings, nothing. 
And I basically just kind of found out about every fashion trade show available. And I would just go. And I mean, if you could probably have seen me at these trade shows, I was probably just standing on the trade floor aimless. Like, where do I go? <laughs> Who do I talk to? And But I was never, ever afraid to talk to anybody. And so I walked up to this guy. His name is Carrie Marcus. And I just said to him, you know, Carrie, um... I like your stuff. He was like the owner of a clothing brand at that point. I think they've long um, become defunct. And I said, I don't know anything about this, but maybe you could do something what they call private label in the fashion industry, which is where you don't necessarily design your own stuff, but you may find a line that you like and you say, it was like a straight size line. So I was basically like, what if I found like three, four, five styles out of your line and you basically make it in larger sizes for me and I put my label in it. And he was like, <laughs> I'll never forget this conversation. He was like, what are you going to do, kid? What are you going to like make 50 pieces of style? Like, what are you going to do? Like, what is this? Like, what is this peanuts business you want to give me? Like, nobody wants has time for this. And I hounded him for like three, four weeks. And I would literally show up at his office like every single week until finally he said, listen, come here. And I, like, he sat me down and he pulled out his Rolodex and he said, you go to this person for your patterns. You go to this person for your samples. You go to this person for your fabric. Now get the F out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, that's how it happened. Oh and I would God. never forget, my mother was with me that day. And she was like, I'm not going up there again. Like, how many times are we going to go up there and bug that man? And I was like, it was 39th Street and, and 8th Avenue. And there's a Starbucks on the corner. And she was like, I'm going to sit in this Starbucks until you come down. I'm just not going up there again. And I was like, I'm going. <laughs> and when I came down with the contact, she was like, I can't believe it. Like, I don't know where you came from. I can't believe you convinced them to give you all this info. So... Every single vendor that he gave me, I literally still work with to this day. Like, they're still my development team. And I think that for me, you know, being a plus-size woman, I knew what I wanted to wear. I just didn't know how to create it, right? So the marketing and the vision and the body positivity was already inherently in me. I just didn't know how to actually bring a product to life. So once he kind of gave me those tools, it was just, it was Murder, She Wrote. I just went from there. And that was <laughs> Murder, she wrote. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read that at one time in the very beginning, you were working out of your parents' basement. So what were you doing then? Did you like get machines and were actually physically making stuff? We always worked with a manufacturer in New York. So they were basically making the clothes. But what we were doing out of my parents' house was like order fulfillment, which mm -hmm. is very much what we did when we had the eBay business. So, you know, I used my computer science degree to set up a rudimentary website. I thought it was pretty decent for the first website. And pretty much from about day one, because of a number of different press outlets that featured us, we started to get orders. So my mom and I would fulfill it out of our house and you know we always had said from day one we wanted to seem like bigger than we were so like we'd answer the phone like we were a big company like you know good afternoon Monique C um it's Diana speaking meanwhile it was me and my mother speak calling you know picking up the phone <laughs> right and customers would call and be like is Diana available like uh, uh, hold on you know you gotta like change your voice and it's now it's Diana and it was meanwhile it was my mom and I the whole time that's hilarious. <laughs> so you're fulfilling orders out of your basement, out of your parents' basement. Now, how are you funding this business? 
Well, when I first started, I knew nothing about what it actually took to run a clothing business. I mean, it takes massive amounts of money, which I've now learned. But at the time, you know, I was basically looking at this like, okay, I basically just have to have enough money to manufacture my first season, build a website, you know, that everything else I could pretty much do on my own. And the website I pretty much do on my own. So I went to my very pragmatic father, who I actually thought was going to shut me down. And I asked him for a loan. And, you know, it's not like my, my parents weren't, you know, money bucks. He basically had to mortgage his house to give me this loan. But oh, I eventually wow. Back. But the loan was probably about $35,000. So I started with that. And then shortly after that, we got like a women in business loan for like 10000 But I will say that we started to get sales. And one of the things that I think it helped us to do, we weren't necessarily profitable immediately, but I do think that our factory saw that we actually made traction. Because you can imagine like these factories and these vendors, they probably have a million people calling them daily, talking about, I'm going to be the next big thing. And they're like, yeah, 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 kid, just, <laughs> and just beat it, right? But they actually started to see that money was coming in and so they would start to give us terms on invoices they weren't looking for us to pay immediately like I, I could stretch it 30 days or I could stretch it whatever and so that helped to finance us also and like I said it just kind of went from there we kept it small we kept our expenses low I was basically working out of my parents house for the first three years so that helped to keep cash flow circulating a little bit more we kept and not only was the business lean we also kept our personal expenses very lean. I love it. And can we just pause right here to, first of all, clap it up for your parents and your dad for being so supportive. I mean, taking out a loan. I mean, clap it up. It's like, I I don't know. Sometimes when I recount the, 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 the story, I say to myself, I don't even know why he did it. I mean, my parents are West Indian. My mother and father are from Barbados. They expected me, my brother and sister to be professionals, doctors and lawyers and everything. And here is their mathematician daughter coming to them talking about they want to start, she wants to start a fashion brand. I thought he was going to say no. And I at least thought he'd say, let me think about it. But literally in that first conversation, he was like, okay, I'll go to the bank tomorrow. And I was like, wow. wow. That's pure so, belief. Know, was, yeah. There was some fine intervention. There was some belief, you know, he thought something was going to happen. And also, I like how you discuss getting creative. So, so, you know, not everyone might be able to call on their parents, but, you know, looking for those small business loans, keeping the expenses as low as possible, like living and working out of the place you live for as long as you can stretch it. Like these are ways to fund that business. And I could totally relate because... I sometimes think about getting a recording studio. I'm like, girl, we're going to keep it in the bedroom for as long as possible. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I mean, fast forward to today. I mean, we went from home to office and now most of my operations is back to whether my team is working out of their home or we're working out of our fulfillment center i've moved operations out of very expensive new york city because Mm. you know as 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 large of a company as you make it you know 
it, it's still it's hard to buck the current of eight and nine and ten thousand dollars a month in rent, especially in some of these large cities. I mean, that's what that's what you're looking at paying, and it just it doesn't make sense sometimes for your bottom line, especially when everything is so virtual. Right. That's it's crazy. Yeah. I'm like I order from Instagram boutiques. I don't even know where they're based. Sometimes exactly. I'm like, oh, this is in London. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why is this taking so long? <laughs> a lot of people keep it quiet. They should. I mean, because yeah. it doesn't change the, the service that you get. It's just they're not taking on that crazy expense to fulfill your order. So where are you based now? Well, interestingly enough, I am a little bit all over the place. I'm like a little butterfly. I mean, I spend most of my time in New York. I also travel quite frequently because I've got vendors and team members around the globe. So I actually don't even really have a physical office. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot of times I'm in New York, London, Hong Kong, and then I kind of do the, the circuit again. We have a fulfillment center in Virginia, which basically is our like base of operations for where our shipments and everything happen. I have some staff that are virtual. I have some staff that are in New York. I have some staff in Pakistan. I mean, it's just kind of like we went from being this business that was like everybody has to be in the same location to me saying, okay, is that even the best use of dollars? No. Everybody can work from home or they could work from a cafe or they could go to the fulfillment center in Virginia. I'm going to be moving around. And as long as we get the work done, that's all that matters. I hear that. So going back a little bit to, you know, the early days of Monif C, at the time you started out, I know the plus size industry was very different than it is today. And what were some of those initial challenges you faced with gaining buy-in from retailers and really getting people to take your brand seriously? Well, interestingly enough, what I heard even before the brand came to actual product in hand, and I heard it even from people like Carrie, who ultimately supported me, was that nobody's ever going to buy this. And I would say, why? They'd say, you know, there was this very strong belief that plus size women do not want to wear fashion forward clothing. They want to wear black. They want to wear gray. They want to wear nude. They're waiting till they lose weight. You're wasting your time. You're putting a lot of money into something that people don't actually want because everything that I wanted was colorful and body conscious and sexy. And they were like, it's a waste of time. And so I heard that from vendors. I heard that from factories. I heard that from buyers. And although we had the metrics that basically said otherwise, because not many businesses come out the gate and actually make money immediately, especially in the e-commerce field that's so crowded with people. Like, I mean, it's not very common that you launch a site and then you get a sale within a day. That was us. And so although we had metrics that said something different, they were like, no, no. Nobody wants this. What ended up happening because of that pushback, that was the biggest pushback, because of that pushback, and again, it goes back to, which is why I kind of started with that long-winded story about eBay. It went back to us saying, well, you know, we actually know how to sell online. You know, we don't necessarily need these retailers. And I think that that was probably three, four years before every, well, maybe about five years before people started to get hip to that. Like, why don't we actually build our, our own website and not rely as much on major retailers? Hello. And so we, we, we pushed that. <laughs> you know, we really pushed yeah. that because that was our only ace in the hole. We had these products. We had to sell it. You were telling us that you don't want it. Well, we got to figure out something else. And that's basically what we did. Nowadays, you have the likes of Jill Scott wearing Monique C. Like, how did you start attracting that target audience so you had sales within a few days? 
Well, you know what? We didn't even, it wasn't something that we went after. I, 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 well, no, that's a lie. Let me not say that. We didn't go after it, but it wasn't with the expectation of getting a celebrity client. What actually happened was, and it was very serendipitous, I happened, <laughs> random one to tell the story, but somewhere along the line, I got on the email. It was one of those clubs where somebody emailed their entire email list instead of like BCCing people. And this person was a stylist in the plus size industry. And on her email, she had Stacey London's email. She worked with what not to wear. Okay. And she had Stacey London's email in the mass email, probably two, 300 emails that she sent out, including myself. And I reckon, you know, it's probably like a S London 427 at whatever. And, you know, me with my like, you know, spy eye was like, wait a minute, I think that's Stacey London's email. And I reached out to Stacey London and I literally sent an email and I said, you know, I know you have this great show. I don't know what the copy was, but it was basically like, you know, if you're looking for clothes for your plus size makeover clients, I would love to send some. And she literally called, I left my phone number. She literally called me and she was like, and, and this happened before the line launched. Because again, me being willing to talk to any and everybody in the industry, what I heard was, you know, PR doesn't just happen the next day. It's not like you send out a press release and then somebody calls you the second day. And I knew how important marketing and public relations would be to the sales. And so I said to myself, if we're gonna launch September, 2015, let me start my marketing campaign in terms of media like July, still being clueless about how the whole media world works, but at least knowing enough to know that you can't start day one. So I sent her this email around July. She literally picks up the phone and calls me. She's like, we're doing a plus size client like next week. Can you send some stuff over? I sent it over. She calls and she's like, we don't like this. We like this. Can you send some more? We send it over. Well, long story short, we launched on September 12, 2015 and September 16th, 2015. 15th, our taping of what not to wear was on TV. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it literally, I mean, for everybody who's listening, who's interested in press, I mean, one of the things you'll notice about press is that press begets press. So it's like, if you get written up on this, they're each reading each other and they're all looking at each other and they're like, who's this person? Who's this person? And then they want you. So like literally a month later, I pitched uh, Essence Magazine. I'm sorry, we pitched Essence first. Actually, that is true. We pitched Essence and Essence actually passed, but we pitched Glamour and Glamour Magazine picked us up and put us in the October issue of like top plus size clothing. We were like top plus size skirt or something. And I guess Essence saw it and then Essence called us and they said, we want to feature. And it literally went like that. And so the press features are what started first. And then we got a phone call from Essence and they were dressing Jill Scott for what, and you know, again, sometimes, you know, God saves you from yourself because I didn't know how big it was going to be. It was like, send some clothes for Jill Scott. And we were like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> and not realizing that they were not only doing a cover but they were doing a full spread and they basically used our clothes for the entire spread. And that was like a game changer for us. That really, <laughs> it was like, I'm so embarrassed to tell this story. It was so, we were so ignorant of the impact of it that when they called us and said, can we keep the clothes for Jill? I was like, what? <laughs> See, you like, got to focus on the big picture, guys. 
Like, what are you talking about? No. And then, you know, I think Essence actually bought the clothes for her. They, they were probably too embarrassed to go back and be like, Monique, he doesn't want to give you the clothes. They, it was nothing against Jill. It was just, I'm thinking about every dollar. And I'm right. like, what are you talking about? I'm sure about? they but understood it, that, though. Yeah. It turned out to be, I mean, I probably would gift her 10 times over at this point. It turned out to be a huge press moment for us. And then I think... That was huge. And then we also had BET Rip the Runway, which was just like, I definitely think that that was what set us definitely on the map. And and as a result, just the celebrities and the press came after that. So I have so many questions, Monique. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Okay, where do I begin? Number one, I'm curious, did you hire a publicist after that? Because you were doing pretty good on your own. <laughs> I actually didn't hire a publicist until five years in. Okay. Again, like, I think a mixture of just wanting to save money and also not, like, sometimes, again, you're, sometimes you're naive to what you need. And I was just kind of like, well, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good on my own, so I don't know if we need a publicist. And I eventually got one five years in, but that was really because... I felt like I needed a different pool of press. By that time, we probably had been in Glamour 10 times, Essence, you know, it's like, and grateful for all of that, but also a little bit like, okay, is there another feature we have to get? And I, I I do think publicists have their place. I do think that you have to, you have to really think about what your goal is, because I would never recommend to a company out the gate, go get a publicist. They're very expensive. And I think that you could do a lot of the groundwork yourself, which is what we did for the first five years. Second question is, how did you scale to meet this demand with all this press? (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I'll say this. Press doesn't necessarily equal sales. Okay. So that you have to remember. Yes. It, does, it does eventually, I think, equal sales, but it doesn't automatically equal sales. I think that what we found was it was like this kind of like slow build. The people who initially loved us, loved us. It didn't matter if... Jill Scott wore us or this we were I mean we were on Wendy Wendy Williams radio show this was before she even had the TV show that was actually another big moment for us The View Barbara Walters The View when that was really popping was another big press moment for us but those are things that are not it's not like people think you're you go on the view and then you wake up to 10,000 orders it doesn't happen that way I mean maybe for some companies it does but for us I think if anything it's recognition like so you'd get these emails from customers that would say I saw you on Essence and then I saw you on BET and then I saw you on The View and then I saw you on Wendy and then I did this and so now I'm finally going to place an order like after they've already seen you 10 different places because I think that for some customers it gives them a sense of like okay this is a legitimate business that's actually doing stuff and I should pay attention you know as opposed to like the first press mention out the gate somebody's giving you their credit card information there's people who love you and they're going to do it regardless but we found that it was more of like a slow build Speaking of sales now, when did you start to reap profit from your business and how many years did that take? Oh, wow. I mean, I for us in a clothing business, the profit, you've probably only seen that about year seven or eight. And that's that I, I always say we have to separate profit and we have to separate cash flow because yes, yes. in the clothing business, 
you know, because you have to manufacture before you actually make money on your goods, your cash flow may be in the red, but you may be profitable. And so um, we saw profit about year seven, but we still managing cash flow because it's a constant like outflow of cash before you actually get cash in. I'm yeah. glad you bring up cash flow because it's something I think I don't talk about enough on this show. So besides the manufacturing, what were the other things you were investing back into your business? Oh, wow. I mean, it's a constant investment. You know, we've got a, a email list with about 400,000 women. You know, MailChimp wants a pretty penny for that every <laughs> yes. single month. You know, you've got um, Facebook ads and Google ads and, you know, all of these are expenses that are Yes, that you can look at your return on investment and you could see that this Facebook ad bought in seven sales. But again, it's cash that goes out before you know if you're going to actually make cash back. So um, website maintenance, you know, when you get to a certain um, size business, it's, it, you know, you got to get off the Wix account at some point, yes. you know. So, <laughs> no shade no to Wix. But... <laughs> none, none at all. But, you know, you, you got to get off of that at some point and you got to have a, even if it's not a team, you've got to have a freelancer that regularly monitors your site, make sure that you don't have downtime. And, you know, it's a lot of um, expenses like that. You need staff that are going to, even if you, I've always wanted to keep my business small. I've never really wanted to have a lot of staff, but, you know, even the staff that you do have, you got payroll, you got workers' compensation, disability, you've got everything. And, um, it just, the, the list kind of goes on. So, you know, one of the things that people sometimes say to me when they want to start businesses, whether it's clothing or whatever, is they get very concerned about what the competitors are, how competitors are pricing and how competitors are do stuff. And I say to startup entrepreneurs, you know, you, you may only have the expense of yourself at some point, but at some point you're going to have the expense of a lot of other things. Please set yourself up in a pricing structure that allows you to pay for all of those things. You don't want to go from selling something for $10 one day because you think, all right, I made it for five. I could sell it for 10. I made five bucks. Good. And then next thing you know, when you really understand the cost associated with running that business, you've got to sell that $10 item now for $80. And now your customers are looking at you like, what's the eight times markup? And it's like, not a markup. It's like, that's what it really should have been that's what you really should have charged if you took into consideration all the costs associated with running a business. Snap, snap to that. Such an yeah. excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into just how you're sustaining it and growing the business, love to know what was the biggest challenge of starting Modnif C and then what's been your biggest accomplishment? I think that the biggest challenge is definitely funding, period, end of story. You know, when you... The clothing business in and of itself is a business that a lot of investors and bankers look at and they're saying, eh, I don't know, because it's an inventory driven business. And a lot of investors don't want to deal with that because they're basically sitting on what they feel is a liability in case the goods don't sell. So that is... It is a challenging business to get funding for. And we've had to be very creative. We've had to do stuff like we pre-sell our goods so that we can help fund the business. We can help fund the, not even the business, but production of said goods, right? And I know a lot of biz, a lot of businesses are doing that, whether they're fashion or not. I mean, that's kind of like what Kickstarter is all about, right? Like give us money and in six months you'll get the product because, 
If not, you know, they've got to find money to manufacture it. So that helps. Um, you know, all types of like twisting and turning you've got to do to fund a business because a tech company is like a one, two, three. Sure, yeah, I want to invest in your tech company. You're gonna, you're gonna be a competitor with Snapchat. But like, you want to make clothes, and I've got to sit with inventory. I don't know about that. So that's one. Um, I would say that's probably the biggest challenge. The biggest, you said, accomplishment. <sighs> I mean, um, I'd say Forever Twenty One is pretty up there. I mean, and I I would say that because um, I've, I've had a lot of experiences talking to uh, retailers and I've sat down with all of the major retailers. And what I loved about Forever 21, you know, I know that they, when we announced it, some people were like, Forever 21? Like that cost structure is way different. But, um, you know, I think that they are really committed to the plus size industry. And when they came to us, it was literally the easiest buyer conversation we ever had. I mean, usually there's like an arm twisting that happens with these buyers. It's like, come on. I mean, like we've got all these followers, we've got all these sales been around and they're and the funniest thing is they're they're usually coming to you right yeah. but then you still got to twist their arm to you. you're kind of like I hate you that yeah yeah like why are you here then but forever 21 was like yeah we want you order was written within 10 days and i was like wow this is like really happening so that was that was pretty big for us and i and i the reason i say that i mean there's lots of accomplishments there's the customer that calls you and says, I've never worn a swimsuit ever in my life. And now I'm wearing one because of you. There's all of that. And that, that gives me a lot of joy. Um, and, I, but I, I also think the reason I point to a forever, or even I could say ASOS, which has been an incredible partner for us. I say that because there's still this concept, there's still this idea within, uh, the business world that you've quote unquote made it when a large company wants to do business with you. It doesn't matter that 99% of our business comes through monifc.com. The fact that, you know, Forever 21 wants to do business with us is seen as a pinnacle of our career. And, and, and I, I, I co-sign, you know, I think that that gives you credibility within the business world. And you guys were one of the first plus-size brands to even do swimwear, right? Yes, absolutely. I know that inventory and overhead is a big cost when yeah. it comes to merchandise. So what would be your best practices or tips for someone who's starting out to know, like, what percentage of inventory should you keep? And also, how long will customers wait before they're like, where the hell is my order? <laughs> <laughs> That second question gives yes. me a giggle because we've had some challenges with that. You know, it's interesting because I think that um, I would say you can only buy the inventory you can afford to buy, you know, and I, I have a, a young man that I mentor and, you know, when he was starting his line, he had like, you know, I want to make all of these garments and all these different colors and all. And I was just like, no, no, and no, you, think this, <laughs> you know, like, and I remember even the factory that I work with who, you know, they've given both of us advice. It's like you stick to four to five styles. This is in the clothing business. Obviously every business is different. Four to five styles, like two colors three sizes keep it tight 
and keep it, you know, keep it within stuff that you feel comfortable that is going to sell. Now, everything's a risk. You don't know. But it's just like if you were investing, like you're not, if you've got $1,000 to invest in stock, like, or, or more than that, you know, you're not going to invest in like this, like, most of us, if that's your only money, is not going to invest in some upstart. Like you might even just buy one share of Google blue chip stock because you know it's likely going to go up, right? Like you're going to place your bet where you feel comfortable. And so I would never tell somebody to place their all of their bet on like this variety of stuff. You don't know what's going to happen. It's better to start small, see what happens. And then go from there. And so I, my advice is pay, buy what you can buy and know that it's not, if you have $10,000 to put into a clothing business, you can't put all $10,000 on your product, right? Because you still need marketing money. You still need website money. You still need money that floats you while you're making no sales, right? And 10000 it sounds like a lot of money is not. So you might only be able to do one shirt, but it's the best shirt people have ever tried on in three colors and two sizes and you start it like that and you see what the traction is. So that's, that would be my recommendation. And in terms of how long customers are going to wait, I mean, I think that it's, it's this weird, it's this weird um, juggle you do because we, we simultaneously live in a world where people are getting product from China within two days. Like they go on AliExpress, they can order something and in two days, DHL has it to their house. So people have this expectation of this very quick shipping, whether it's Ali, whether it's Amazon, whatever, but you and I can't necessarily do that, especially if we're producing our product. It's one thing if we're like a drop shipper and we're just getting product from overseas and the transaction is passing through us, but somebody else is shipping, which I think is viable business too. But if you're like me and you're actually making stuff, you've got to deal with vendors and factories and did the fabric come in wrong and the this and the that. And so you may have an expectation of a two or three week ship time. And we've had situations where it stretches to three and four and six weeks. And I've had customers say, go screw yourself. I don't want it anymore. And I understand that, but I also know that that's my, so that is the, that's what we're dealing with. I also have customers that say, I will wait eight months for this. I don't care. I love it so much. So I do think that the product speaks to how it, it's, a, it's a function of how important that product is to the person who's buying it. If they're really willing to wait for it. I will say that I ordered something from Bloomingdale's. They targeted me with an ad, beautiful <laughs> dress. I ordered the dress, right? Instagram ad. So I told you, I'm like <laughs> straight order from Instagram all the time. And that dress didn't come for like 12 weeks. But I was just like, well, I guess that's how long it takes. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of these retailers are yeah. doing vendor consumer drop shipping. Right. So that probably direct from the vendor and right they, and Bloomingdale's never had that inventory nope. they're just the go between they're collecting the money and the person had to make it yeah right? they, so, their ad campaign you, probably did way better than they expected <laughs> so there right. it goes Alrighty, now back to forever now for those of you who didn't know what Monif was talking about her line has recently launched at forever 21 and that's amazing first of all congratulations that's awesome thank you, thank what, you so much yeah I would love to know what else is part of your long-term vision for growing the Monif C brand. And also, how do you approach partnerships and, you know, what's the right fit for your brand? 
You know, the long-term vision, that's such a good question because when I first started, I had it all mapped out. Oh, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and this is going to happen. And, you know, I'll say that pretty much everything that I mapped out happened. So that's good. I, I am a proponent of goal setting and mapping out. But, you know, I've been doing this now for 12 years and there's a part of me that I don't know if it's good or not. You know, I don't know if I've become this airy, fairy law of attraction person, but I'm kind of like, let the universe bring whatever it brings, you know, because um, I do think that there's something to be said for right place, right time, right everything, you know, and there was things that I wanted and I thought I wanted it in year two and it came in year seven and it actually turned out to be better than what I expected. And so, you know, I want, I know that my, my, my big goals is that I want more women to be able to experience Moni C. I want to be able to open up new price points so that people who can't necessarily afford a $150 dress can get us at a different price point. You know, I want to be able to innovate. Like I, I definitely think that that's my passion. You know, when I started the swim and we were like the first brand to do swim. And when I started even doing things like luxury coats for plus size women and different stuff like that actually makes me very excited when i start to see a category get saturated i get bored i'm like Ugh, all right now everybody's come in some people have copied some people have innovated all right i'm over it now like what else can we do right so i'm always kind of thinking about that and um i definitely think that the forever 21 partnership is going to spark new energy within me so is the asos partnership spark new energy we have another major announcement coming in the fourth quarter of the year, which I'm excited about. So it's just about expansion. You know, it's just about expansion. It's about listening to our customers. What do you want? What are you looking for? You know, 12 years ago, there was nothing in the field. Now it's much more saturated. So it's like, okay, how do we kind of twerk this? You know, how do we, how do we give the customer, there's a lot of same in the industry. So what's next? What are people looking for? And just being, having an ear to that. So it's just, it, it, Honestly, I, I, I was, I love the idea that plus size women are finally having options. You know, I was in one of the biggest, you asked me about big accomplishments. I was in South Africa probably about six years ago. I was walking down the street in Cape Town and I kid you not, this woman came up to me. She said, you're a fashion designer, aren't you? She's a South African woman. And I was like, uh, I am. And she was like, <laughs> I don't know your name, but I know you do plus size fashion. I mean, tears came to my eyes. Wow. I'm in South Africa. Like, you know, and it's not even about the fact that she recognized me. That's one. It's that she, you know, she's she's aware that a woman like her has an option to wear a really fabulous dress. And I love that. Like, I love getting the emails from the girls that are like, I've been insecure my entire life and now I can wear something really dope. So it's a very long-winded answer, but it's just basically expansion. It's expansion, expansion. It's fun. It's 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 just new, exciting innovation. Like, that's what I'm all about. But it's strategic expansion, too. Like, I'm sure you've had brands approach you, and their messaging and their angle is just all the way left. So how do you determine the right deals to make and people who are really about the plus-size community and not just out to make a buck? 
Well, I think interestingly, I haven't been approached by like sharky kind of skeevy people. And I think the reason is because our brand messaging is so specific that I don't think that anybody would really fall and bump their head and think that we're something that we're not. So if anything, when buyers and partners come to us, they're like, we want to learn from you. Like, how should we be talking to this customer? How do we position your clothes in a way that makes sense, that that is connected to your brand vision, as opposed to, you know, something that's a little bit, um, that's not as genuine, right? So thankfully, we, you know, when ASOS approached us, it was that. It, when Forever approached us, it was that. It was never this kind of like, we just want to make it quick. But the plus size industry, I mean, anybody who's not in involved with it at this point I just if that's in the fashion industry I just look at you with a side eye I mean it is <laughs> how can how can you not right. I think if anything it's about how do you make it more how do we give the customer more and um yeah I I, I think if anything the approach has been very very genuine which is trust me a lot different from what it was 12 years ago where it was like for lack of a better word, those baddies don't want any clothes. And I was like, what? Okay. So crazy. Well, we'll do this. Yeah, we'll do this on our own. And then it was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, maybe they do want clothes. So the, the vibe has definitely changed. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Now we are going to transition to the bonus round. Yes. Um, you basically answer the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. All righty. Number one. What's been the best business book or podcast episode that you've consumed this year? Oh, um, I really am an airy fairy uh, spiritualist, but I like anything by Wayne Dyer. There's a Wayne Dyer book that I read recently. It was like the 10 laws of like to abundant life or something like that. But it was a Wayne Dyer book. Oh, nice. Number two, who inspires you and why? I'm really inspired by Lisa Price. She's one of my mentors. I, I just, I think I'm inspired by innovators. Anybody who decides to do something that has never been done before in a big way, just just knowing what it takes to do that, because I've had to do that, she's a big inspiration to me. And I love her, like I love her whole life, her marriage, her whole life. Like I just feel like she's a good example of like having it all and persevering over adversity. Awesome. I love Lisa Price. I yeah. just looking from the outside, like, I don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, what is a daily practice you use to start your day on the right note? Oh, I meditate every single morning. Absolutely. I don't get out of bed without prayer and meditation. It's like necessary. Nice. Do you have an app or just do it on your own? I, it's a little bit of different things. Like I, I read a little bit of Bible verses. I listen to some Abraham Hicks on YouTube. I, um, you know, I kind of visualize how I want my day to go. I've been really taking in a lot of Tony Robbins lately. And he talks a lot about starting your day in a, a peak state. So he has this video where he kind of jumps up and down and he says, yes, yes, yeah. I'm not doing it as with the fervor he does it, but <laughs> No, but like you'd be you'd be surprised how stuff like that is an immediate mood lifter. And if you start your day like that, it really does set the tone for your day. So I, you know, I jump up and down. I listen to soca music. I meditate. I just like I make sure that before I even touch my phone or my computer to do work, that I'm in a particular state. 
Ah, that's it's such a good reminder. I'm off and on, but I need to get back to it. Oh, it's, it's so necessary. Number four, who's your favorite designer other than yourself? Ooh. Does it just have to be clothes or can it be accessories? Anything, yeah. I love Chanel. I'm a Chanel. I love Chanel. All about it. Oh, okay, fancy. Carl <laughs> Lagerfeld, you know, not necessarily Carl Lagerfeld yeah. fan. I love Chanel. <laughs> yes, it's, it's classic. It's beautiful. Yeah, I love the accessories, the bags and everything. All right, last one, number five. What's your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss but are worried about losing a steady paycheck? Wow. I mean, I will say, you know, 12 years ago, I was definitely much more like, oh, take that risk, jump, you know, like, what are you afraid of? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I think I've become a, become a little bit more pragmatic as, as time has gone. And I realized that Steady Paycheck is really friggin' boss. Like, <laughs> where, what consulting can I take on so I can get a steady pay? I mean, I, I think it's great. Like, I have I have friends that are business owners that work a nine to five, and I I don't see anything wrong with it. I, I do think that it takes a certain level of concentration and focus, though, because when you give your all to a business and, the, uh, and not your own, someone else's, and then you've got to give the same amount, actually double or triple the time as your own, that's pretty difficult. So I, I, I think that's the biggest piece of advice is to, I don't think it's bad. I, th I think having a steady paycheck is not bad. I think that if you can make it if you have the luxury to make it on a consultant basis, so you're not necessarily in somebody's physical office, and then you could kind of call your own shots working from home or whatever, I think that that's a nice, a nice way to spin it. But I don't, I don't see anything wrong with having your own job. I will say that you have to have your focus on a hundred though, so that you can give. 40 hours to somebody and then you could give 80 hours and I know there's not 80 hours to give but practically 80 hours to yourself because you if you want to be an entrepreneur you've got to work double or triple as hard at your own venture and then working for somebody else hello side hustle pro life <laughs> the whole premise i love hearing the different <laughs> responses to that question like some people are like just do it there's no security and then some people are like well don't don't take that check for granted so and like, I, said, like I, and, and listen there is no security even when you have a job you yeah. know how many do you know that get laid off every single day so it's not it's not a security thing but i do think that you know a lot of times that that steady paycheck helps to fund your dream business and so if you don't have that and you know i when you think about my history you know i had my i was 26 well, I was 24 when I started the eBay business. I was 26. I had the luxury of living at home. I had, you know, I was able to basically bring my expenses down to nothing. You know, I think about women that have children and families. You can't necessarily tell your kids, oh, sorry, mom's not going to work anymore. So I realized that it has its place. But I will say that you have to have that kind of focus. Most people, when they leave a job, they want to just go home and eat dinner and go to sleep. But if you're going to do both, you just have to know that that commitment has to be incredible. And, and I, I don't know if we're going over our time, but I remember when I oh, was, no, um, keep talking. <laughs> I talk forever. But when, when I was, um, when I was 
started Monique C, I mean, I didn't have, Monique C was my job. Like people say to me all the time, like, oh, when did you quit your day job? I'm like, no, 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 I didn't have a day job. That was actually what forced me to start Monique C. So that motivation was like backwards for me, right? Like I had nothing else, so I had to make this work. But I will say that I exhausted myself and I still do sometimes to keep it going. And so I can imagine that if you had to do that and have a job, I like I kudos to the people who are able to do it. So I think that the perk is that you have that steady money, but you just have to know that your hustle game has to just be on a whole nother level. Amen. Everything you had to say, you're preaching to the choir. But it's so it's so good <laughs> to have it reemphasized because you're right, it is hard. So thank you for just reinforcing that and giving us hope. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, absolutely doable. And, you know, and some people, you know, some people kind of look at it. I will also say this. Not every business has to be a $10 million business. Now, if it is, fantastic. But, you know, what Biggie said, more money. I don't say it's more money, more problems, because I don't necessarily think it's problems, but $10 million business, you know, 500 employees, a lot of a lot of hands in the pot, a lot of things going on. You know, you got to decide. I remember somebody said to me one time, do you want that level of business or would you be happy with a $2 million business or would you be happy with a $100,000 business? Now, you know, it may be quote unquote, and I, I don't use this word to put it lightly, it might be easier to manage a $200,000 Etsy business that you basically sold the clothes maybe on the weekends or you'd contract it out while you work full-time at blah, blah, blah. And listen, that might be $100,000 profit a year in your bank. I'll take it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, this does not have to be this multi-million dollar venture. If that's what you want, that has its perks too. But just because a company makes $10 million doesn't mean that they profit $10 million. So your revenue numbers and your overhead might be out, out the roof also. So I do think that you can set your intentions. Like you could say, you know, I'm going to start my own skincare line and I'll be happy if I get two or three or 10 or whatever wholesale account, I, I can manage, uh, a, you know, $200,000 business on my own easily. And that's where I want to stay. It's profitable. It puts me, I can live a great life on that, me and my family. And I could also work my job and keep, like, you have to know your expectations. I think that just like everything else in life, you've got to design it for, for the lifestyle that you want. And you've got to know that the bigger it goes, the more time and focus that you have to put on it. And the way you, you have to position it that way. So not every business, you, you make that decision yourself. First of all, I just want to say like, hello, God, is that you? Like, I feel like you're reading my mind <laughs> about real, <laughs> real things I've been contemplating lately because, you know, the lifestyle that I aim to have, it's not one where I can never take a vacation because I'm worried about, you know, all the personnel problems and the money and all of that. Like, so it's a real, you know, good problems to think about. Yeah, but it's, it's- to think about and I remember someone saying like even when I decided to you know okay I'm going to close this office in New York and I'm going to make everybody virtual and mobile and whatever you know I a big part of it the part of the reason I did it is because I said you know when I got into entrepreneurship you know going back to mom saying to me you're showing up at the office at 10 a.m. are you serious I never wanted to be in a position where I was quote unquote a slave to an office or a slave to routine. Now I'm a highly focused person. So I do have a level of routine, but 
you know, just be being tethered to one particular place or whatever. And so to your point about vacations and living a life and whether you're dating or you're this, that, and the other, it's like you've got to craft your business alongside with your goals. I, I think that that's actually one of the things about entrepreneurship that people forget. Like you're an entrepreneur because you decided to live your life on your own terms. So craft your lifestyle for that. Craft your business for that. It has to all be in line. If not, you're going to eventually become an employee of your own business and you're going to create the same monster that maybe you're trying to get away from by working for someone. So all of that has to be a very clear understanding when you're setting things. And it's not that you're going to know everything day one, but those are things to think about definitely things to think about as you pivot. Like I think a lot of us start out and things grow and then we might look up and say, hey, like this is not the direction I want to go in. This is not feasible. So it's perfectly okay to pivot. Thank you for the gems. What's the best way that we can connect with you after this episode? Sure. Well, um, my Instagram is Monique Clark. Um, I'm sure you probably have the spelling for the podcast, but it's yes. just Monique Clark. If you're interested in purchasing any of our goods or seeing our collection, it's MoniqueC.com. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm, I, I manage my, <laughs> I manage the Instagram, the company Instagram is Monique C plus sizes. You know, I, I do a lot of that because I like to interact with people. So DM me, you know, whatever it is, I, I'm, I'm always open to interaction and, and, and all that. I actually recently did my first uh, course on how to launch a fashion brand. So I should probably plug that. Oh, the yes, please. Is- yes. <laughs> I actually, I did my first course. Uh, gosh, I want to say it was November or December of 2016. And I had probably about 60 people on the class and people have been asking me to do another one for months and I haven't been able to get to it. But if anybody's interested in learning how to start your own fashion brand, you can go to launchafashionbrand.com, but you can also email info at um, launchafashionbrand.com quicker and I can get you information on that because I know a lot of people are interested in getting into the fashion industry and I try to give the real deal because one of the things I saw when I was coming through is number one in the fashion industry, a lot of people do not want to share information. I mean, I kind of lucked out by getting Carrie to kind of open his Rolodex, but not only, even if people are willing and there's information out there, it's usually very jumbled and not very clear. So I try to give people a very direct, like, listen, these are the steps and here's the real deal. If you really want to do this, this is what it entails. Um, and I I'm not sugarcoating it. And if you don't get me at launchafashionbrand.com or info at launchafashionbrand.com, because I really do need to update that site. I feel like I'm going to like spank myself for that because I've really been slacking because of Monique C. You can also DM me at Monique Clark if you want info on that. Awesome. I'm so glad you brought that up. And for those of you who've enjoyed and want to learn more from Monique, definitely check out the course. I will link to it in the show notes. And, you know, thank you so much for being in the guest chair. This has been awesome. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. And there you have it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. 
If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side hustle corner to get my weekly side hustle diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at side hustle pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to join the side hustle pro Facebook community. Go to sidehustlepro.co forward slash mastermind. And as always, if you love the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week.